Welcome to Bible Worm. We're on hiatus until September 2021, but this summer we're replaying our 2020 series on the Hebrew Festival Scrolls. This week, enjoy our episode on Lamentations 3 and 5 from June 21st, 2020. Happy listening, and see you in September. Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, here each week with Dr. Robert Williamson. We are two Bible scholars and people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. Bobby is a professor of religion at Hendricks College in Conway, Arkansas, and founding pastor at Mercy Church in Little Rock. I am the director of lifelong learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. Together we are Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. This week we continue in the Book of Lamentations meeting an individual survivor in chapter 3, and hearing the voice of the community in chapter 5. We raise up the differences between this individual man's relationship to his suffering compared to what we heard from daughter Zion, and look expectantly to the communal voice to tell us which perspective is the better one for us to adopt, which, spoiler alert, it does not. Instead, in magnificent and strikingly ambiguous poetic language, It creates a space in scripture to hold multiple perspectives on suffering. Man, do I love the biblical text. I hope you'll enjoy it. Hello, Bobby. How are you? Hey, Amy. I'm pretty good. How are you? I am doing all right. So last time was our first session on Lamentations, and we gave a general introduction of historical background right. and just, you know, a little bit of the the meter of the text. What else would you want to offer in terms of introduction as we're heading in this week to sections of chapters three and five? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that we sort of touched on a little bit last week, but maybe are going to become more important for us today. That is just that Lamentations is presented in at least five different speaking voices. So you've got the narrator or the funeral singer and daughter Zion, who we talked about last time. You've got a kind of annoying narrator in chapter four, who we're not going to talk about. (laughs) I don't like that guy. (laughs) Because he's annoying. He's annoying. We don't want to hear him. In chapter three, which we're talking about today, we have a figure who calls himself the man. I am Hagever. I I am the man. I am the man. And he uses a word there for man that has some kind of connotation of strength or warrior-like uh-huh. nature. Yeah. So my teacher, Kathleen O'Connor, calls him the strong man, which is also how I tend to refer to him. And then in chapter five, we get a communal voice, which is the only we voice in the book, which seems to be the community responding to these voices that have spoken before and trying to make some kind of, maybe make some kind of sense of it or add their own testimony to it. So that perspective of multiple speaking voices allows the book to do some really interesting things by setting us alongside each other, these perspectives that don't necessarily hold together without having to resolve them, which I think is really important. Yeah, and you don't have to like take the average of all these perspectives right. and come up with one sort of happy medium. They really can speak freely. The other thing that's interesting about Lamentations is, I mean, there's lots of things, but one other thing that's interesting about Lamentations is that the first four chapters are written as alphabetic acrostic. So Mm -hmm. they start, they're 22 verses long, one for each letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So chapters one and two have start with an Aleph, and then in verse two, it's a Bet, and then Gimel. It's like English being written A, B, C, down to Z. 
Chapter three, which we're reading in just a minute, triplicates the pattern. So it's Aleph, 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 Bet, 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 Gimel, 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 A, 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 B, 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 C, C, C. So it's mm-hmm. the same pattern, but like ramped up a little bit um, and sort of emphasized more. And then chapter five in the communal voice still has 22 verses. So it's got the alphabet in mind, but it doesn't actually follow the alphabetic pattern. So this this style of lamentations is a curious thing for interpreter and something we probably want to pay attention to. Okay, when you were a kid, do you, do you used to write these poems that weren't necessarily acrostics, but like you would try to write out like Bobby is awesome and like write words across for like B is for, I don't, what's a good, beauteous and <laughs> O is for obstinate no i'm just kidding (laughs) (laughs) no i was really interested in that a psychological experiment to see how you were going to describe me under pressure on the podcast did you do those things i did yeah yeah those are acrostics they're just not alphabetic acrostics. they're just not alphabetic acrostics so when i've seen this form in english it always seems a little silly to me because it's so like grade schooly so i have to remind myself reading lamentations that this is not like you know the mother's day card that i got from my son oh my god bobby when he was like five you wrote Happy Mother's Day down the side. <laughs> yeah. The, you know, thing. And the only thing I remember about this poem <laughs> was there was a line that was just my mother's stomach. That was a line. <laughs> it was an, a, it, an object of great fascination. Wow. Yeah. Um, so our first little section is in chapter three, verses one through three. And I am reading the NJPS. I am the man who has known affliction under the rod of his wrath. Me he drove on and on in unrelieved darkness. On none but me he brings down his hand again and again without cease. I kind of love this, I am the man. I Like, I am the man who has known. Yeah. I think I like it because it, it, it really pulls you down to the particular person. Like, it's a... Yeah. It's a reminder to me that when a group is suffering or when a city is suffering, like, you know, daughter Zion is an individual, but is representing a city. Right. And so to have it really focused down in the experience of one individual person who is a part of that collective's experience of suffering. Yeah. Is, is a really powerful thing. You can see when we start into this already that he also is someone who has experienced trauma. So last mm-hmm. week we talked about the narrator, the funeral singer who never talks about his own experience of trauma and daughter Zion who does. Mm-hmm. So we, we now have two kind of survivors in Lamentations. One is gendered female and one is gendered male. Yeah. And I'm curious about whether, whether that's going to be important or not. It's a really interesting question. And it's certainly in these couple of lines, it seems like the dominant metaphor or the metaphor he's starting with is really different than the kinds of metaphors we saw for Daughter Zion. The metaphor that I see in these verses is is the shepherd, that imi- like shepherd imagery. Hmm. I don't know, of this sense of being like driven forward with a rod yeah. into unrelieved darkness. Like to yeah. me seems to sort of flip on its head this idea that your shepherd is going to lead you into safety and walk yeah. you through the valley of darkness, but not like drive you into it. No, I, the bad shepherd. I, I never really thought about this that way, but that <laughs> really is what the shepherd. image is. It's, you are a bad shepherd. <laughs> that puts a real point on it for me in a different way. <laughs> yeah. 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 
you know, the both daughter Zion and the strong man, they recognize that there is an, an enemy like the Babylonians who are involved, but they're both interpreting that as ultimately coming from God. And so they yes, share this absolutely. kind of idea that God has wounded them in God's anger. And mm-hmm. so to me, yeah. I, I love what you're saying about the difference in the metaphor of shepherd and, you know, bodily humiliation. I think that's really important. The underlying kind of position of we have been wounded by an angry God, they share those, mm-hmm. they share that idea. They talk about it differently. So we skip a little bit. And now we are picking up again in verse 17. My life was bereft of peace. I forgot what happiness was. I thought my strength and hope had perished before the Lord. To recall my distress and my misery was wormwood and poison. Whenever I thought of them, I was bowed low. You know, in those verses that we skipped, there's this really strong, like it's a really aggressive kind of experience of suffering. So he, he uses the metaphor of a God is like a bear lying in wait. God shot yeah. arrows into my vitals and God ground my teeth into the dust. And so there's this real sense of the, like the, this dramatic suffering, which is, you know, this sort of physical pain. And then this, yeah. the part that we are reading here makes this really interesting move to the kind of internal dynamic of that. Like I've experienced this physical pain. And so what it does to me is it, it robs me of the peace in my soul. And I can't remember what it's like to be happy anymore. It's just, I mean, this is really interesting kind of emotional expression. Like, okay, the physical pain is one thing, but like this has really affected me like deep in my, deep in my being. You know, the line in here that really gets me is to recall my distress and my misery was wormwood and poison. Mm. Because I want to ask, what do you mean recall your distress? You just said he's crushing your face into the ground. Did you forget your distress? Like, yeah, to I mean, to reflect upon it. But it just the verses preceding it seems so immediate and so all encompassing. But you're right. This does sort of recognize that there is also a way that we need to psychologically or emotionally process everything that's happening to our bodies. And that is a whole other level of trauma, I guess. It's a whole other level of the experience. Do you have ways of thinking about how those two things go together? When when you hear experts talk about trauma, like psychologists or, you know, folks who work a lot with traumatized populations, nowadays, at least, they, I hear a lot of conversation about almost out-of-body experiences mm. when, you're, when your body is being traumatized and that you have sort of a way of, of separating your, I don't know what to call it, your sort of spiritual and emotional awareness from what's happening to your physical body, yeah. and you, you know, you kind of watch from afar. And, you know, and it's interesting, you've already commented on sort of his like gruff exterior and he's like, you know, talking about all these big, you know, stereotypical strong man-y kinds of yeah. things. But for him to acknowledge that there, there is also this other part of it for him, or at least there was this other part of it for him where he has to sort of integrate into his story of his own life or his understanding of how the world works, that this this suffering has happened. And what does that mean, you know? He's also done with the acrostic, he has triplicated the acrostic, which I mentioned, I think, in the introduction, but he's sort of, you know, instead of saying, here's an A verse and here's a B verse, he's going A, 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 B, 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 C, C, C. It's, there's almost this kind of insistence about it, yes. which to me is kind of loaded with his 
kind of testosterone strong manness. But it's really mm-hmm. interesting to watch. Like it's almost like he's trying to force down his emotional experience, or he's trying to like, I don't know exactly what he's doing, but he's he is very actively trying to apply some kind of coping skills to force his experience to be something he can handle. Do you think that yeah. does that sound reasonable? I mean, yeah, I th- I think it does. And I think I think I would have articulated a similar thing maybe more positively, but that yeah. that I think that using poetry in any kind of structure, like you can sort of like vomit out this chaos. Like he's in this completely chaotic yeah. experience physically and psychologically. And it gives you some container to put that in. Yeah. You know? And I really appreciate, like, I don't know what my negativity about the strong man is, but I appreciate the gentleness with which you are kind of trying to read him. And like, you, you are being much more <laughs> kind of compassionate towards him. And I really, I really appreciate that. So we are now in verse 21. But this do I call to mind. Therefore, I have hope. The kindness of the Lord has not ended. His mercies are not spent. They are renewed every morning. Ample is your grace. The Lord is my portion, I say, with full heart. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who trust in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait patiently till rescue comes from the Lord. So this feels like a big, like we just took a sharp left. (laughs) Yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah, into, sharp into left in the land of hope. Yeah. Okay, so so why what makes him hopeful? Because it seems like things are pretty bad for him right now. <laughs> things are terrible, and he. I think he's making a theological move, which is to say that this thing that I'm experiencing right now is a temporary thing, and mm-hmm. it, there's going to be relief in the future. And I know that is true because I know who God is. God is a God of steadfast love and kindness, and that is who God has been. That is who God will be. And mm-hmm. in this moment, that is not God's orientation toward me. But the merciful God is ultimately God's true nature. Yeah, I mean, I, I read it similarly. I have a particular, there's a particular resonance for me between this text and a passage in Exodus 34, where they're reciting these 13 attributes of God that are that become part of the Jewish liturgy that we say all the time. So yeah. that's probably why it resonates for me. But kindness and mercy are among them. I yeah. guess they're, you know, spoken about a lot. But the place where it hits in Exodus is right after the golden calf episode. It's like yeah. as Moses, they've already smashed the first tablets with the commandments. They're putting the second ones together and then this is recited. So there's there's like a particular pointedness to wow, we really messed up big time and God, wow, was really mad. Yeah. And everything was okay again. Yeah. But yeah, I think it is, I think, yeah, it's the the precedent. Like, this is not the first time this has happened. It probably won't be the last time that it happens. But it's not, it is not the case that everything is ruined. Yeah. I just think it's pretty, I don't know, I guess remarkable that someone who is in the moment of that intense suffering is able to get to that place because that place can can feel, I don't know, more abstract or I don't know. I No, I love all of that. And, you know, in the communities where I function on the streets, this is actually one of the most 
kind of popular passages. I mean, maybe in all of scripture, like people know this little 321 to 26 or somewhere right in there. Yeah. But I really struggled with this for a long time because I thought, you know, I thought like, look, you're living on the street, like your life is difficult. You need to just be able to name the stuff and not try to turn it into some kind of hopefulness. And what I found was this is what they, this is what got them through till tomorrow was mm-hmm. my suffering has meaning. My suffering is in some sense deserved. My suffering has an end. And I know that God's going to restore me. That was really important. And I, I tried for a little while to like nudge that loose and say like, no, you just yeah. need to be able to lament. And people were very resistant to that in a way that, that was like, I learned my lesson, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like yeah. I shouldn't be trying to take away this perspective that, is enabling them to survive. No, I love hearing your perspective on that because my first thought reading this was also was sort of, well, don't shut down the lament. Like, don't move it into like a Hallmark greeting card. Like everything's going to be fine. I mean, I appreciate the fact that, you know, you should be grateful when you wake up in the morning, but some days it doesn't feel, some some days you don't feel grateful for waking up in the morning. Yeah, that's right. You know, And, and based on what he is describing as going on, I can't, I imagine there were days that, that that your first thought wouldn't be I'm so grateful to live another day. Yeah. This text really does create space for people to respond how they respond. Yeah. And if he responds personally by going to this place of hope, like all the better, like a blessing on your head. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to continue at verse 27, and we have decided somewhat on the fly that we're going to go to verse 33 instead of 32 because there's just, there's good stuff. There's good stuff everywhere. Okay, verse 27. It is good for a man when young to bear a yoke. Let him sit alone and be patient when he has laid it upon him. Let him put his mouth to the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to the smiter Let him be surfeited with mockery, for the Lord does not reject forever, but first afflicts, then pardons in his abundant kindness, for he does not willfully bring grief or affliction to man. I see much less in the strong man in terms of reference to things that they have done wrong Mm. or a sense that they have sinned and deserve this punishment. Mm. It sounds more like an initiation to me. Or something that is just like, this is just the season that we're in. Mm. Our powerful figure is angry and is responding in anger. But I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the question I had in my head was sort of why why would one understanding of suffering sit more easily or uneasily with a person? Like, I think we talked last time about the idea that if you believe that this is sin and punishment or an act and consequence, you know, for all the problems that imports... It gives you a sense of control. Like yeah. if I if I hadn't be, I'm controlling things with my behavior, right? But the benefit of this way is, I don't know, like maybe it, it helps you with your sense of self-worth or mm. I don't know, like he doesn't have this, this, he doesn't seem to have the shame that daughter Zion has. And when you think about the gendered nature of these two images of daughter Zion and the strong man, you know, and like, I mean, I, there's all kinds of ways to go with that, but the sort of like the 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 move towards shaming and yeah. like ex- expectation of guilt, which daughter Zion seems to have been like kind of almost resisting, but feeling like she's supposed to say that, but maybe she doesn't want to. 
The yeah. strong man, it's, it's really interesting that the strong man just is like, guilt is nowhere kind of in his in It's just his not mind. on his mind. Yeah. yeah. You know, I don't really know. Like, I'm I'm discovering that I'm a little judgy about the strong man. <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to correct that a little bit. You can just notice what comes up for you, Bobby. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so this is me as the sort of outside person thinking about what is useful for someone who has experienced trauma. And every bit of me wants to say this, this is bad theology (laughs) because God is hitting you, smiting you. But what you need to do is lean into it willingly because God doesn't want to be doing that. God just kind of has to do it, but God's not going to do it forever. And I, I so struggle with that because to me, it sounds like the kind of rhetoric around like spousal abuse. Right. Where God is angry, God's gotten out of control, God has to punish but doesn't want to. Mm-hmm. And what you need to do is sit there and take it, and then when when God's anger has passed, then the relationship will be restored. I just struggle. I struggle with that piece so much. Yeah. I don't know that we actually need to solve this for the strong man. You know what I mean? Like the strong. Uh, yeah, and I don't. I don't think we will. <laughs> the strong I mean, man has said what he has said, and yeah, part of our task is to allow him to have said it. Yes, I think, I think that's exactly right. And we can sit with our own discomfort. Yeah, <laughs> it's not the strong man's problem. <laughs> right. That's exactly, He's got his own problems. That's exactly right. Should we press forward? One of the things that's interesting to me as we move into chapter five is we now have these two testimonies, daughter Zion and the strong man. And I read them as being really quite different from one another. I'm curious whether Mm -hmm. you think that as well, but she has sort of said, God is angry beyond what is justified and I don't see any future here. He -hmm. has said, God is angry, but justifiably so, or at least characteristically so. Yeah. And so if I wait long enough, then there's going to be hope. And the yep. book has given us these two voices. Then there's no real way. There's no there's no obvious way that those two voices resolve together. Does that seem right to you? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I it does. So then when we turn to chapter five and the communal response, we sort of think, well, OK, maybe the maybe the communal response is going to pick one of these voices or something like something's got to give here, doesn't it? Like, how can we just have. Right. How are we going to wrap this up in a tidy little bow? Yeah. What's the real what's real here? Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to begin chapter five uh, right at the beginning. Verses one to three. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Behold and see our disgrace. Our heritage has passed to aliens, our homes to strangers. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. I think it's so interesting. This this lift up, like, remember, O Lord, and see our disgrace. Like, look at at what is happening. Yeah. Reminds me much more of Daughter Zion's testimony. Like, look, bear witness to this and really asking God to look at it. Yeah, so her when she called out in chapter one, it was remember, look, see. Yeah, pay yeah. attention. Yeah. And yeah. here we get the communal voice. And that's really voice what we have here. Echoing, mm-hmm. yeah. Remember, look, see. That's that's what they want. And it's interesting to me that the first thing is pay attention. And then there's the next thing is like attention to loss of sort of sovereignty over the land and their homes. Yeah. Like, is is that really the most pressing thing? 
on their minds and their hearts, like the most immediate thing. But it also, to me, has this like deep sense of intimacy. Yeah. And I don't know if it's because I've read, you know, so many stories of of refugees and particularly of Holocaust survivors who return to their home after a trauma only to see that someone else is living there, just like living in their house and using their stuff. I mean, in the face of everything that happened to the Holocaust, like, my God, who cares that someone's living in your house and using your stuff? Like, (laughs) I mean, after all the physical trauma, like there were a lot, a lot worse things that were happening, but it feels like such a personal violation. That's really helpful. And, you know, in the, in this, you know, the, the phrase inheritance or heritage, Nachala, is used to talk about the land, the land Mm -hmm. of Israel between like, as part of the covenant between God and the people of Israel is the land. And so there is that sense of that that which belongs to us is now being occupied by somebody else. And also there is that sense of the thing that God promised to us has mm-hmm. now been given. So it's a been a, given to someone else. Yeah, it's much bigger. Yeah. yeah. So then we have a, oh, a long section of verses from four to eighteen that mm-hmm. we're not going to read all the way through, but it is sort of recounting the suffering of the people. That it's it is highly reminiscent of what we've heard from Daughter yeah. Zion and from the strong man. So they're not choosing one side or the other, but they are affirming the type of suffering that has been happening. And then we come to a what I think is a very striking end for the Book of Lamentations. Yeah. So we're going to pick up in verse nineteen here. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. Your throne endures through the ages. Why have you forgotten us utterly, forsaken us for all time? Take us back, O Lord, to yourself and let us come back. Renew our days of old, for truly you have rejected us, bitterly raged against us. Mm. I think it's so striking to start with God is enthroned and thinking about the context of this statement. I mean, where was God's throne? Right? God was sort of enthroned in the temple in Jerusalem. Yeah. Right. And the temple has now been destroyed and Jerusalem has mostly been destroyed. So this seems like a like a theological statement that answers a question. I mean, I don't maybe it wasn't a question the authors had, but I feel like one response that one could have to seeing the destruction of the temple is God lost some kind of battle. Yeah. So this feels like a very clear God has not been conquered. God is enthroned. Yeah. In the face of all of, you know, that doesn't look like what you thought it looked like anymore. And I mean, these are the last verses of the book of Lamentations. And so this is, you know, it trails off after verse 22 without any clear resolution. But this is such an interesting move of, so God, you reign forever. And then you forgot us completely. Restore us. For truly you are angry with Angry with us beyond. Yeah, measure. you have you have rejected us and bitterly raged against us. Yeah. That's what that's what the GPS. It's has. so fascinating how it's sort of moving back and forth between this kind of like hope for the future mm-hmm. and then sense of rejection, hope for the future and then sense of rejection. Yeah, it's so it's kind of an unstable kind of. It, it is ending. deeply unstable. You're right, and and in some ways it really goes back and forth in really interesting ways between that sort of hope of the strong man and. I don't know, resignation of daughter Zion. So you had mentioned that there's a couple of translational issues in this passage. And the most famous one is the transition between verse 21 and 22. Could you just read that the 21 and 22, the way it is in, Mm -hmm. in JPS? Sure. 
Take us back, O Lord, to yourself, and let us come back. Renew our days as of old. For truly you have rejected us, bitterly raged against us. If you follow that translation, what do you think they're saying right there? So take us back, make everything like it used to be before, because you have gone too far. Yeah. That's how I, I think that's my best attempt to put those things together. I think that's, I think that sounds right. So there's, so that ending is, I mean, it's not hopeful is a little, probably not the right word, but it's holding out the possibility that God might choose to do something different than what God is doing right now. Right now, God is rejecting and maybe God would return and restore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The transition word that your translation is for truly in Hebrew, and there's a huge scholarly argument about what that means. The NRSV has restore us to yourself so that we may be restored, renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us. So that's also seeming to say, like, we think you're going to restore us, but we realize there's a possibility that you might have rejected us. Right. Right. It sort of opens up the possibility that maybe this was for real. Like, maybe you really have completely rejected us. Yeah. The Hebrew ki'im can also be translated, and in other places in the Hebrew Bible, is an adversative, like, but rather. And then it would be, renew our days as of old, but rather you have rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure, which reads then in almost the opposite direction of where we started, which is to say, we think you ought to restore us, but you're not going to, are you? Right. So this, this translational issue, like, creates a range of interpretive possibilities from maybe... We think you're going to restore mm-hmm. us. Like, it's bad now, but we think you're going to restore us. To it's bad now, and maybe you're not going to restore us. To we think you ought to restore us, but you're not going to, are you? Right, but you're not going to. Yeah. You have thoughts about what we would do <laughs> with that? I don't know, Bobby. I'm kind of a dark person, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it is really powerful to have an end to this that acknowledges at least a possibility that things are not going to go back to normal. Yeah. Like to have this plaintive plea, yep. restore our days as of old. And this uh, verse 21 is all over the place in Jewish liturgy. It's not just at the holidays, like it's at every Shabbat service. We yeah. we recite, you know, like it's it's really core. And, and actually in the Jewish tradition, when we recite this book, we don't end it at 22. We say 21 again afterwards yeah. because we don't want to end on that on that note. But I think thinking about where they are historically and and provide, I don't know, like giving them space to to not know. Yeah. Feels feels important to me. I love that. One of the things that I think as an interpreter, uh, which is related, is maybe instead of expending our energy, like arguing about what is the best translation of that, is to embrace the ambiguity of that. And to yeah. say, whether it's intentional or not, the interpretive effect is that has opened a range of final comments on the book from God's about to restore us, which sounds like the strong man, to God's the only one who can restore us, but God has rejected us, which sounds like, to me, like daughter Zion. Mm -hmm. And it has allowed both of those perspectives to sit alongside each other so that people in the community could say those exact same words, but mean almost opposite things from there's a... There's a lot of hope to there's a little bit of hope to there's no hope, but the communal voice is speaking together. 
Oh, I think I love that, Bobby. I think that is so powerful to think about that sort of unifying effect for the community of being able to recite these words together and all be able to agree on them, but have spaciousness within those words for people to to see their to see their experience in the words, you know, to be able to inhabit the words differently, depending where they're at. Going back to verse 19, one can read that. In in the NRSV, it's translated, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations, which sounds like a declaration of God's continued ruling capacity, as we were talking about it before, which Mm -hmm. to me sounds like the strong man. God is large and in charge, and Mm -hmm. God can restore us. Mm -hmm. In Hebrew, those words are literally, you, O Lord, forever you sit on your throne for generation and generation. Which when you see that expression used in, in the Psalms, like in Psalm 74 and other, other places, that's normally followed by rise up, O Lord, and, and like take vengeance Yeah, for I was going to say that. I say that to my 13-year-old. Forever you sit, get up and do your, get up. <laughs> yeah. So then, yeah. So if you read it that way, then God <laughs> is just like abdicated responsibility. God is sitting there watching all this stuff happen. And not taking any action. Yeah. Which to me sounds like the kind of thing that Daughter Zion would say. Yeah. So one can read that That's as... That's amazing. Yeah. So what I think, the way that I read Lamentations 5 is Daughter Zion and the strong man have laid down theological perspectives that don't fit together. And Lamentations 5, the communal voice has had to say like, well, what are we going to do with that? And what they decide to do is instead of picking one or the other... Mm-hmm. They have said something that is spacious. I love the way you said that. So that daughter Zion and the strong man can say the same words in Hebrew, but the amb- ambiguity of the spaciousness of the words allows them mm-hmm. to mean almost opposite things and yet yeah. be in community together, speaking together and hearing the community around them affirming what they're saying, even though what they're saying is incompatible. Yeah, I mean, it really, it makes me go back and think again about about poetry as a, a medium yeah. for this kind of experience. And, you know, we talked about acrostics offering a lot of structure, like a pretty yeah. intense structure. And you it gives you a place to like sort of <laughs> vomit your chaos into a struct, you know, into a into some kind of structure. And that can be a really helpful thing. But it also has so much room for for multivalence, you know, for yeah. people people experiencing the words really differently. Yeah. And really can kind of function as the highest sort of most profound symbol in some way that people can relate to these words differently mm-hmm. but share a relationship with them, I think is um, yeah. pretty magical. Like that's yeah. pretty magical. Yeah, I love that description. And, you know, we said at the beginning that the daughter Zion acrostic is Aleph, Bet, Gemel. The mm-hmm. strong man's acrostic is Aleph, 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 Bet, 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 Gimel, Gimel, Gimel. The communal voice in chapter five, has it's dropped the acrostic form, but mm-hmm. it's kept the 22 verse form. So it's, it's echoed the pattern, but it hasn't forced the pattern into one way or the other. So it's, mm-hmm. again, that sense of structure, spaciousness within structure is echoed in the form here. Whew. Well, this is an exquisite and really challenging book. What would you pull out for our communities today? So 
there is a response to trauma, which is protest, which Daughter Zion has represented. But there is also a response to trauma, which is holding out hope that things might yet be better. Not pretending like trauma hasn't happened, but acknowledging the trauma and then saying, and yet we have hope. And here's why. And sometimes it seems like in contemporary life, we, we think you can do one of those things or the other of those things. You can protest or you can be hopeful, but maybe it's hard to do both of those at the same time. What this text does in a really interesting way is it allows both of those voices to be in the community together to say our pain is so great that we have lost any hope and we're just angry or to say our pain is great and yet we remain hopeful that we can work this thing out. And the communal voice has decided not to make a choice between those two positions, but has decided to speak in a way that can hold those two voices together. It's, it has said, we prefer staying together as community more than we prefer theological conformity. We want to create a space where we can all have our experiences. And I think significantly that those two voices, those voices that have themselves experienced trauma can speak the truth of how they process and think about their trauma. And so the implications of that for me, for contemporary communities is we need to learn how to be more invested in helping our community speak its truth and even its variety of truths. Mm -hmm. We need to be more invested in that than we are in forcing one sort of correct theological or political response that is the kind of community's response. Let's, let's value each other more than we value the conformity of our voices. I mean, I love that. And I, you know, sort of as you were talking was sort of like, what else, what else could a person even say about this, about how to use this text now? I mean, so uh, Bobby and I used to have a, a professor in graduate school together named John Hayes of Blessed Memory. And we learned many things from Professor Hayes. But one of the things he would ask a lot, he was, um, he himself was Protestant. I don't remember what, what denomination, ba- Baptist? I think he was Baptist. And he, he loved the Hebrew Bible. And he would ask us all the time, why has no one written a theology of the Old Testament? Like someone should write a theology of the Old Testament. He used to try to persuade us that this should be like our first big book project. Do you remember this, Bobby? I mean, my Maybe first response is this. lots of people have written theologies of the Old Testament. Well, they didn't satisfy him. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I don't remember this. <laughs> well, so having having that story in my head, whether it's apocryphal or or not, and then encountering a text like this, I feel like this is why... This is why I don't want to write a theology of the Old Testament, because I don't want to look for the golden mean. I don't want to say this is the primary theology and these are the outsider theologies arguing with it. I I want there to be room for all kinds of different interactions with the things that actually happen in the world. But I really I like that. I mean, mean, it's complicated. It's nice. You know, it's, it's not tidy. Yeah. But I feel like. Life is not tidy and suffering is certainly not tidy yeah. and our relationships to God are not tidy. And I I love that there is this text in our tradition that even within itself, even within one chapter, yeah. you can't sum it up. I mean, if you try to sum up the book of Lamentations, you can't sum it up. 
Yeah, to sum it up, you have to erase voices and to make yes. trite conclusions. Or some scholars have argued that chapter three, because it's in the middle, should be the controlling voice of the poem. And then you erase Daughter Zion on the one side and communal voice on right. the other. Right. And sort of fight against the idea that there is a controlling narrative. Yeah. And just say, I'm going to let all of these individual perspectives wash over me, and eventually I'll have some sense of what the landscape is here. And it's it takes a long time. And I think yeah. interacting with communities that are suffering, that is, that's part of it, too, is like listening to each individual yeah. person, yes. as many individual stories as you can, instead of trying to create the, the news story headline summary of this is what's happening. I think that's right. And if what you mean by, and I think it is what you mean by theology of the Old Testament is like a singular theology of the Old that's Testament. That's what I meant. Testament. Yeah, a like, singular theology. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. The The effort to find one theology necessarily erases other theologies mm-hmm. and often like minority voices that have trouble being heard in the first place. Mm-hmm. So here we have exactly a model that is saying what's actually important is embracing the diversity of theologies. I, I think that's really important. Really important. Well, this was one of those those magical podcasts where I like thought new thoughts about the text while we were talking. Yes, and those are always my favorites and I really yeah. appreciate that, Bobby. Me too. Next week we are what are we reading next week? Next week we're in the Song of Songs. Song of Songs. That is a a shift in mood. <laughs> it is. Reading these Good. little five books gets us into some stuff. So we're going to go from like trauma and protest <laughs> to human sexuality. That's be... Gets us into some stuff. It yes, it does. It does. Well, I look forward to it and I uh, will talk to you next week. All right. See you then. All right. Bye. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Bible Worm. Join us next week for something entirely different. Song of Songs, a celebration of embodied love and sensory delight. I hope you'll join us. Have a great week.